0: So let me just share some with you. So last Sunday, I had a religious experience. Now, I didn't say spiritual experience, but last Sunday, I had a a religious experience. So now, Diane and I, neither one of us are concert people to go to concerts. Not Christian concerts, not secular concerts. We're just not concert people. Uh, You know, and part of that struggle is that I'm not an artist guy, you know. I mean, there's not an artist as such. I want to hear, you know, hear hear them, hear him or her, whatever, just to hear them. So my deal is I, I don't want to go to some concert sit for two and a half hours because a certain artist happens to have a song that I like. I don't want to sit for two and a half hours to hear a song. And so there's the other dilemma. So you either sit there for two hours to get to the song they play at the end, and you have to endure the rest to get there. And then what's even worse for me, a money guy, is they sing the song right up front. Now it's like, well, let's just go. I'm done. You know, why, why sit for the rest? So we're not concert people. In fact, the last concert, a secular concert, secular artist that we went that we went to, we didn't even go together. This was before we were married. We found out years later that I had gone to a Neil Diamond concert Back in 1970, um and, uh, and she was at the same concert as on a date with, with someone else. So we didn't even know each other at that point. But we found out later that we were actually in the same, same concert. So that shows you how many secular concerts that we've gone to through the years. And not, that haven't done much better on Christian concerts. So that's just not where we live. But I have always had this thing for years. I've just wanted to go to a Billy Joel concert. I just like Billy Joel. i want wanted to go to concert. So for Christmas this past year, our kids gave to us tickets to go see Billy Joel. Now, I'm in New York for business and for meetings for the college, so it worked out perfect because it's at Madison Square Garden. And so last Sunday night, we were at Madison Square Garden with 20,000 other people for a Billy Joel concert. Oh, my. What have I been missing my whole life? I couldn't believe it. You know, I hate the warm-up act thing. There's no warm-up act. The lights go dim. That comes out, bang, he's on the piano. For two and a half hours, and if you know anything about Billy Joel, we're not talking big production. We're not talking huge you know, stage show, whatever. We're talking Billy Joel on the piano, a couple guitar players, I mean, some backup vocals with him, but, you know, percussion, uh, synthesizer, you know, keyboard, I should say, uh, you know, uh, sax, two and a half hours of just, just music and it's like incredible how do you just do that then at one point he says he goes uh, i mean even starting off he goes so i got good news and bad news so he comes off he starts off with a song of course everybody knows goes crazy he gets done with that song goes let's say you know hey how are you tonight i got good news and bad news the bad news is i don't have any new songs to play for you whole place goes yeah this is where i live don't give me new stuff and he goes and the good news is i don't have to worry about playing new stuff yeah you know so we go to the concert and then, uh, you know, two thirds of the way through or so, he goes, now we're gonna play a song that I actually didn't write. We're gonna do one song tonight that I didn't write. And he starts playing it and it's like a song that we easily re- re- clearly my age recognize it. It's a song by ZZ Top. And he starts playing it, so we're going, that's decent. And then ZZ Top comes out <laughs> and ZZ Top plays. It's like unbelievable. So you need to know, even though it was fantastic, two and a half hours of every song that I knew, I'm still not a groupie. I'm not them. I was one of, I was in the room with them, but not one of them, the, the people that just live, breathe, die, know every word. There was, a guy, there was a guy, there was a woman next to us, and the whole time, the whole night, whole night she got her eyes ice ice going. <laughs> and part of me says, open your eyes, see what he looks like. But she just, she's in the zone. There's a guy down here in front of us. He's bigger than I am. He's balder than I am. He's had more beer than I had, which I didn't have any, so that he had more beer than me and everyone around us had. And this guy, for two and a half hours, never sat down, never stopped belting out, belting out every single song, word from word, fist raised, screaming and shouting. The poor, his poor wife, she just she just, enjoyed the, just enjoyed the show. As we all did, him and Billy Joel, both watching that show. But then there's this family right in front of us husband, daughter, wife, daughter's probably 25, 28-ish. So husband, husband, daughter, wife, and then looks like the wife's sisters, like two or three sisters. And they know every song I mean, singing every song, moved by every song. I mean, there are a couple of songs where they're in tears. I mean, the husband and wife, they're in tears looking, holding hands, singing the words back to each other. Of course, I'm laughing a little bit, Look at Diane going, uh, that ain't ever going to be us doing that. <laughs> they're having these moments, and then I hear her lean over and say, this is as good as it gets. And part of me's going, it really is. <laughs> we get all done. We're back. The night's over. We send our kids a note. said, man, thank you. This is the greatest gift. I mean, it was just fantastic. And it's late night. Diane's gone to sleep, but I'm laying in the bed, just still wound up from thinking, this is as good as it gets, good as it gets. And then it hits me. Now you know I don't over-spiritualize things, I don't live in this world. I, it's, just, it's typically not me. But I had this moment where I'm just thinking, then look at this one family, it with tears, so emotional. No, music is an emotional thing. We all know the music of our era, of our generation, all the kind of I got all that. But I'm thinking to those words, they kind of haunt me. It's as good as it gets. And there I am thinking, no, it's not. Now, admittedly, it was really good. But as good as it gets, that's why we're here as a church. Because there is something far better than as good as it gets. Pick the greatest thing in the life that you would think is as good as it gets. Jesus is better. The kingdom of God is better. Eternity is better. You think of the thing in your life that brings you the most joy, the most happiness. I don't care if it's a child or grandchild or family, whatever it might be. That You think, man, this is as good as it gets. Jesus is better. We are here because of that. This is the week that starts Holy Week, traditionally known as Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday when we stop and recognize this is the moment where Jesus entered into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. The importance of of that moment is simply this, he knew he was going to the cross. And where most of us know hardships coming, we turn the other direction, he knew the cross was ahead of him and he came in right straight towards the cross. And that's why this next week, this throughout this week, be different services this, next, this coming weekend I mean, next Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, our Easter services. I' just remind you again, these cards aren't any good next week at this time. Please use these cards. Please use your relationships in talking to people and inviting them to Easter services, because there is something better than whatever it is they think is the best, and it's a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about that. And we're we're hopefully going to show the story in a way that says, listen, there's a story that you may not know that really is as good as it gets. Now, reminder, the service times are different next week. If you're here at the Essex campus, service times are different. So be aware of that. Friday night, Good Friday service at North Avenue campus. Saturday, Ake Hunt, North Avenue campus. Then Saturday night service here at 430. And then Sunday morning services, and they're all off timing-wise. So come a half hour early as we'll have our service times, but use these and Invite folks to be a part of today. Now, this morning, we're going to wrap up our series. We've been talking about being generous. The past couple of weeks, we've been talking about being generous, and just so you know, we're talking about being generous with your money. Uh, you can go back and look, but we're not talking about being generous with your time or, your, or you know, your prayer life. We're talking about being generous with your money, and this series is on being generous. And let me start with a statement. Would you, would you agree with me? Let's be honest. Wouldn't you agree that it's a lot easier to be generous with someone else's stuff I mean, it just is. I was on a trip. I was traveling, and I came back, and while I was gone, my son and his wife, they were moving into a new apartment, and while I was gone, they moved in. My wife was, was helping them move, and so I, I, moved, I missed the move, and I literally flew in after the move is all done, and they said, hey, you should stop and see our new apartment. It happens to be right on the way back home, so I pulled in. I go look in the apartment. I'm going in. I'm going, hey, this looks familiar. That's that. that that's my couch. And, uh, you know, yeah, that's my, that's my couch. I was, I'm gone and my couch is gone. And then I look and there's this coat rack that has been in my office for years. And I turn around and I go, that's my coat rack. And they go, yeah, mom gave it to us. It's easier to be generous with someone else's stuff. That's just the way that it goes. So you would agree with that, right? So, I mean, so, so to that end, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your wallet and your checkbook, your credit card, whatever, get, get those out, and I want you to hand those to the per- so someone either behind you or in front of you. Not someone beside you because there's a chance that they're family members, but take your money. See, I don't see anyone reaching for your wallet right now. Take your money and hand it to the person behind you or in front of you because later when I ask you to give, it'll be easier for you to be generous with someone else's money. Isn't that how it works? It would, it would be really, really easy. So let's just be honest. When we're talking about being generous, we all understand the fact that when it's our stuff, it gets a little, a little tricky because we're not nearly quick to be generous with our stuff. Now, I can't go back and recap all those weeks, but let me give you some quick speed up things to get to this point where we finished today. We're talking about generosity as an issue of the heart and of the mind. It's about setting your money free. And when you set your money free, you set yourself free. You say, well, how do you set your money free? You do that starting place is by settling this issue of ownership. And what that means is you recognize that I am not the owner of anything. Generous people understand. They realize and they embrace. Now catch that. They realize and they embrace the fact that they don't own anything. God owns it all. Everything I have is on loan to me. And it's on loan to me only for a short time. In the scope of eternity, and even in the scope of the last 2,000 years, my life is negligible as far as time. I don't own a thing. It's all on loan to me for a period of time. And if I'm not the owner, that also means I'm accountable to the owner. Make sure you get that, because this is where generosity begins to take, take form when I realize I'm not the owner, I'm not the consumer, I'm the manager, and I will be held accountable for that. Our lives are not our own. This breath I breathe is not my own. My breath is on loan. And as soon as I recognize that, the better off I will be. When I recognize and realize that, listen, I didn't plan my entrance into this world and I don't get to choose my exit from this world. It would be a huge, huge mistake. If you're visiting, you'll hear hear nothing else today. Hear this. It would be a huge, huge mistake on your part to think that you have all the time in the world. Because the truth of it is, you don't know that you have all the time in the world. I mean, your, day, your, your life could be over pretty quickly. Now, last week, we looked at this story from Jesus, and here's that background, where there was a guy, Jesus told a story about a guy who had a lot. I mean, he had tons. He had more than he needed. But on top of that, he got even more than he needed. So he already has enough, and now he gets even more. And recall the story, he doesn't share it, he keeps it. He makes a decision and says I'll build big. My barns are already full of grain. I'll just build I'll tear them down and I'll build bigger barns to hold more stuff. And God said to him, "You fool, tonight your life's going to be required of you." You fool, you th- you've got lots of stuff, but you don't have it have lots of time. You've got a lot of stuff that you're saving and catch this now to consume later. Remember we said this, we don't have money problems, we have consumption problems. Money problems, if it was just a money issue, then if you had a lot of money, you wouldn't have all the same issues that the person with no money. But I can show you people with no money, and I can show you people with great wealth and great money, and they still worry, and they're still anxious. Why? Because it's not a money issue. It's a consumption issue. This guy saved all that he had and more so he could consume it later. And God says, listen, your life is even consumable. Don't forget that. He says to this guy, your life is going to be required of you. And then he says this, and when your life is required of you, then who gets what you have? And the answer is nobody or some, somebody else. You don't get to take it with you, somebody, anybody else, because you can't take it with you. And then he gets done with the story, looks at all his disciples, and here, here's what he said in Luke twelve twenty one: and this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. The this is how it will be is a statement that says that this part is total loss for whoever's not rich towards God. Now, as our spring word forward today, let me help you with this concept of being rich towards God because that's been bothering me a little bit thinking about that to to not spend more time talking about it because the key principle if God's going to say this is how it's going to be for anyone who's not rich towards God I, I feel like I owe it to you to help you make sure you understand what it means to be rich towards God because we want that we certainly don't want to be the other guy I want to be the rich towards God person so what does it mean then to be rich towards God Immediately as we think about this, um, it does involve giving. i tell you right front. So being rich towards God does involve giving, and it does involve giving your money and your resources. It's just really clear. And it's really clear from that because immediately understand that when he says being rich towards God is in comparison to this guy who is not rich towards God. So a starting place, you think, well, what did this guy do? This guy had a lot of stuff, and he kept it and didn't give it. So the starting place is being rich towards God does include giving your stuff. Giving your money, giving your resources. So then the next question, if you're normal, you're thinking yourself, okay, so give to what? Give to God? No. Talking about being rich towards God, not giving to God. You see, God doesn't need your money. When God God talks about being rich towards God, he's not saying to you, hey, here's the amount I want you to give to me so that I can be rich. God's already rich. So he wants us to be rich towards God. Well, then what does that mean? Give to what then? So catch this. Give to what God loves. In just a minute, I'm going to give you a picture. You get this right away. Give to what God loves. Okay, what does God love? God loves his church. God loves his church. And some of you go, oh, there it is. This whole thing was a give money to the church thing. Well, stick, stick with me here because you got that wrong. God loves his church. In fact, the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. You know, and Jesus loves his bride. And some here, some are thinking, okay, okay, give it to the church. Yeah, give it to the church, but not quite like you may be thinking. This is not about giving to the church fund. This is, this is uh, not that at all, because who is the church? The Bible says the church is us. You see, if there aren't people, there is no church. The church isn't a building. The church is the people. God loves his people. God loves his church. You see, the church is an endowment fund. It's not an endowment fund. And by the way, we don't have an endowment fund. Some churches are funded because they have these huge endowments. We don't have that. The church is not the big investment portfolio the church has. We don't have a big investment portfolio. We don't have any investment portfolio. Forget big, we don't have even a little one. Nope. The church is people, and we are the church. The church exists for people. Now, I, got you, I have to get you to remember this, not just for this, money, but this issue about money, but in general. Do you remember that the church was the creation and the plan and the idea of God. It was God's idea to put the church together. He came up with the idea. He came up with the plan and put it in place. Why? Because the church, make sure you hear this. This is so critical. Because the church is God's plan for reaching the world with the story of Jesus. The church is God's plan. There are people who say, ah, who needs a church? You do, and I do. Why? Because God put the church in place. God is the one who said my plan for reaching this world is through the church. God's plan for reaching this region is the church. God's plan for reaching this state is the church. God's plan for reaching this neighborhood, your neighborhood, is the church. God's plan for reaching your neighbors in your street, it's the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're the ones that have the story. We're the ones that carry the story of a life-changing experience with the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, the hope of the world is the church because the church carries the story of Jesus Christ. Please, please stop putting your hopes in the Democratic Party. Don't put your hopes in the Republican Party. Don't put your hopes in whoever might be president now or in the future. Don't, because you know what? It doesn't matter who is in place, there will not be peace because no party brings peace. The person of Jesus Christ brings peace despite the, po- the politics of the world. Despite the wars in the world, he brings peace. The church is the hope of the world. So be generous to what God loves, and he loves his church. Now, let me give you a picture that you'll get right away. If you want to be rich to me your, as your pastor, you want to be rich towards me as your pastor, then love my wife and take care of her, right? If you want to be rich towards me, love my kids. And take care of my kids. Because you take care of them, that is rich towards me. Any parent here gets that, right? Any parent gets that. You want to be rich towards me? Just love my kids. Just love my family. And you're rich towards me. Any grandparents get that, right? You want to be rich towards me? Love my grandkids. See, that's that picture. See, I'd rather have you be rich towards them than to give me anything. Because when you're rich towards my kids, when you're rich towards my grandkids, when you're rich towards my wife, when you take care of them, man, you are rich towards me. So now you get the picture. When he says, be rich towards God, love what God loves. And then you are rich towards him. Your heavenly father who actually needs nothing and is the owner of everything says, as you are rich towards what I love, you are rich towards me. I want to be rich towards God. Now, Jesus defines generosity as people who don't assume that everything that comes in your name is yours to consume. See, generosity begins by making this switch on the ownership issue. Now, today we're going to be very, very practical. I'm going to actually give you a plan for some of you, you will have heard versions of a plan like this, because right from a scriptural principle. But for many of you, this will be the first time I'm going to give you a plan that quite literally can radically change your life. No hype here. This is no markup for you know a thirty nine ninety five. I can change your life. Nope. There's a plan we're going to present today that can be life changing. If you're twenties, in your thirties, eighteen, whatever, you know, fifteen years old, you get this plan right now. You set yourself up for success for the rest of your life. And for those of us who didn't get this plan earlier in your life, you'll wish you had, and it's never too late to start. But I'm going to give you a practical plan. Now Let me remind you of the promise of Jesus, and that is for anyone who decides to live a generous life, a generous life, just so you know, is in contrast to the, the, the world model. Anyone who would choose to do that, your life will be marked by happiness. It's a pretty good deal. Now, happy moments, your life will be marked by happiness. Now, true generous living doesn't happen by accident. So here's the first thing. You want to jot some things down, here's the first thing. True generosity in a generous way of living does not happen by accident. The first statement is you have to have a plan. The first step in being generous is you have to have a plan. Now, I'm going to tell you now, you have to have a plan. I'll help you with but you've got to get a plan. You've got to put it in place. Some of you immediately go, oh, boy, you lose me right here. I'm not a planner. I'm not a planner. You know, some of the guys in the room are going, oh, I'm not a planner. Talk to my wife. She's the planner. Or the reverse, the wives say, talk to my husband, he's a planner. So the, the, the issue is, just so you'll know, that when it comes to finances and when it comes to money, every single one of you, whether you're married or not, you do have a financial plan, even if you don't know it. You have a plan, you just don't know what it is. And quite honestly, we could figure that plan out if you wanted me to. I'll just assign someone to follow you around for a month or so, and record everything that you spend and where you spend it, and after a month or two, they'll just say right here's your plan. And you would say, yep, that's exactly me. So we have a plan. The next thing I'll say is, and chances are good that your plan's a bad plan. Now, some of you are going to say, well, that's offensive. (laughs) Welcome to my life. (laughs) That's (laughs) offensive. But please know, I'm not being critical here. Here's what I know about plans. Unless you have an intentional plan that you are carrying out, then your plan's probably a bad plan. You say, well, how do you say that? Because here's what I know about people. We never drift into a good plan. We only drift into bad habits. And that's the way it goes. See, if I have a really good plan, then I go execute the plan. But I can can have really good intentions, but we always drift towards trouble. We never just drift into great plans or great habits. We drift into trouble. So chances are good if you don't have a set plan that you're following, it's probably a bad plan. Financial habits that you have fallen into, that's your plan, just so you know. Now, let me tell you what most people's plan is. There's a common plan that the entire world, for the most part, follows, and here's the plan. Get it, consume it. If there's anything left, save if you can, and after anything's left to save, well, then give whatever might be left to give. But for the world's plan, typically the plan is get it and consume it, and then whatever might be left, then you can decide what to do with that. Now, The way that most of us save, quite honestly, is based upon our best savings plan for most of us is a plan that if it involves taking it out before I ever get my hands on it, we have a shot to save it. So let me talk about myself right now so I'm not putting any of you in my boat because it could be offensive. I don't mean it to be. Have you ever thought like this? Man, if I could just not see it, that would be better because then I won't spend it. If I can just get my employer to take a portion of it and stick it aside for me so I never get my hands on it, that is better. Now, please know, make no mistake, that is certainly better than you getting in and wasting it all, but what does that say about me? This is why some talk about me. What does that say about me? It says that you have no self-control, Scott. What you are saying is if you got it all and it was up to you to save it, you would spend it all because you have no self-discipline. Now, please know if my employer can take it, that's that's a nice deal. And that even might be part of your plan. But it doesn't speak well of us because what happens is this. It doesn't change my mentality. What it says is, good, you take it out ahead of time. But when I I get whatever I do get, I'm still going to consume it all. See, it doesn't help that consumer attitude and thought process. So most people who live this way consume it all um, accordingly save some if there's some left, and then give any if there's any of that left. They basically live their life of giving by three S's. Three words start with S. Here's the three words. Are those people's lives in their giving are marked by spontaneous giving, sporadic giving, and sparse giving. By spontaneous, it means they only give when the right button's pushed to give. Or it means sporadically. It means that, you know, I'm not giving regularly. It just has to be the right moment. And on top of that, when they give, it's sparse. Well, sparse because it's at the very end. And it's also marked by an attitude for most of those folks that when they do give, they kind kind of feel like this. Well, I sure wish I could do more. That's because there's no plan. If someone guilts me enough, if someone tells me the right story, gets my heart heavy, if someone shows me the right picture, like this picture here, I showed you it last week, or maybe this picture here, and tell you the right story, I can get you to give. But even when you give to that little child who's crying, or you give to some puppy cause, even when you give, it's going to be what? It's going to be spontaneous, it's going to be sporadic, and it's going to be sparse. Friends, there's a better way to live. Generous people have a plan, and they know what their plan is. Now, I'm going to outline for you a plan, You need to know ahead of time that the plan is for you to give, but there's no offering happening, anything like that. So just so you know, be absolutely free here because I don't get to go home with you and there's no accusation in all this. You'll see this as we go. So real quickly, I'm going to tell you how to be generous if, if you're going to give to God, how to do it with generosity. And I'm going to challenge you to actually start that this week. And you go, well, why? Because God says, you'll have a life marked by happiness. If I love you as people, and I do, then why wouldn't I want you to be happy? So we'll walk through this. Now, when you talk about giving, the starting place is always how much. When I tell you I'm gonna talk about giving and you're, I, I'm gonna ask you to give and challenge you to give, the thing that pops in everybody's mind is, okay, fine, how much? Just give me an amount." Now, see, that really doesn't work because it's still not a generosity thing. I'm the same way, though, just so you know. It's like, you're going to talk about giving. Just tell me how much I have to give. But see, that's not the generous thought process. What thought process is that? That's still compulsory. That's still the consumer process. That's still the process that says, just tell me what the base minimum is. Just tell me what I got to do. And even if you're already giving, you would love for me to say, what's the ballpark number so I can judge whether I'm, you know, I'm good or not. You talked about engaging God in my finances. Do I have him really engaged or I have him glancing my way every now and then? So give me an amount so I can judge where I'm at. Okay, first step is I'm not going to give you an amount, but I will tell you the next step in the plan. The plan is you pick a percentage, not an amount. Do yourself a favor and don't pick an amount. Starting place for generosity starts with a percentage. Generosity works best with a percentage. Truthfully, with a percentage, as you make more and as it changes or make less, your generosity sticks with what you make. See, the problem is if you just lock in an amount, you get a little thrown off with that because, of course, as our, giving go, as our, as our, our income comes up, it stays the same. We feel really generous when the truth is, because of course, we're not because it was locked into an amount. Here's the other problem with the amount. If I say, okay, let's say you're going to give, uh, you, have a, you made $100, you're going to give 10 and most of us would go, yeah, $10, I can do that. But now you've made 1000 Now you're going to give 100 Yeah, well, 100 that's a little $100 bill. That's, I could do something with that. And of course, every time you add a zero, you get this feeling like, ooh, that's a lot of money. But step back for a second. If it's a percentage, it's not any more in comparison to where I was at this mark or on that mark. And so it gets you, off, you get your mindset off of the amount, and it simply says, this is the percentage I'm going to give. And again, it's part of a plan. Not spontaneous, not sporadic. Not sparing, and the second thing that generous people do is when they when they when they stop acting like consumers and are going to change their way of living. The second thing is actually reorganize their their financial plan, which means this: they give to God first. They set priorities. See, most of us, our priorities are by default. Well, i got to pay the mortgage, i got to eat, i got to have gas. But for generous people that are going to go with a new plan instead of the world's crazy way of thinking, where you just consume it all, they actually first decide a percentage to give, and then they prioritize, which says, I'm going to give God his first. That's the first step. Instead of consuming it all and seeing if there's anything, no, I'm going to set the amount, and I'm going to give that first. See, it's called upside-down living. And I would challenge you that instead of accepting the world's crazy world of giving, which consume it all and see what you got left and worry the whole time, actually reverse it, give God first. And the world will say, that's crazy. But they're not happy, not like you will be. And they will not be at peace, not like you will be. Upside down living. So here's the plan I'm going to give you. If you take notes, you can jot it down. It's the 10-20-70 plan. I heard this when I was a kid. I have told my kids this, 10-20-70 percent plan. Give 10%, save 20%, live on, uh, yeah, give, yeah, give 10, save 20, live on 70%. So give God, give God 10%, you save 20, you prioritize, you start with that, then you consume the 70. Then you live on the 70. Now, from a simple, from a simple perspective of a plan, if you do this, you're going to give more, save more, have more, and consume less. But on top of that, so you're going to now have a percentage. God says when you have that percentage and you stick to it, you're going to be happier. You have a percentage. You're going to have a new priority. I'm going to give to God first. And then your generosity will be progressive, which means it keeps moving the way your income moves. So I want to challenge you right now. Just decide to do it. You say, well, you're locked in on 10, 20, 70. No, change it up. Change it up. And if you're wondering, well, okay, I'll do that. But so, out of curiosity, Scott, so why did you land on 10%? Well, I'll tell you why. We have two places in Scripture that definitively speak about an amount, if you will. One is in the Old Testament, and it talks about 10%. uses the word tithe, and it talks about 10%. And that, just so you know, that 10% idea was carried into the New Testament as well. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. That's the one place. The second place we have a definitive teaching on amount doesn't have a set percentage. What the New Testament says, Jesus speaking, the Apostle Paul's uh, teaching says this. So here, you want to pick an amount, here's how you pick it. How grateful are you for eternal life? How much do you think eternal life is worth to you? How much is it worth to you sleeping at night, not being anxious? I mean, Jesus Christ came, died on the cross for you, took your sins, a debt that you could not pay. How much is that worth to you? And most of us would say, well, let's just stick with 10%. Let's just work with that. Because when you start putting in that vein, you kind of go, oh, how do I put a price on that? It's, it's, I mean, priceless. So 10%, we kind of park ourselves there. Here's the passage that some of you will know from Malachi chapter 3. I, the Lord your God, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed, which means it doesn't matter how bad bad we get. God stays consistent with His love for us. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from My decrees and have not kept them. Return to Me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, "How are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob Me. But then you ask, "Well, how are we robbing You, God? Look what He says in tithes and offerings." You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. The storehouse is the church. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, catch this, and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. He says, listen, uh, 10%, the tithe, you keep withholding that like you're the owner i'm asking you to give that back to the storehouse to the church to the place or the center of life give that back and if you do that he says not only will you have a happy life but you engage me i will bless you see in their economy blessing would be man keep the bugs from eating up the crops yeah don't let the, the fruit fall off the tree I'll bring it up today. I can't, I, can't, I can't begin to tell you this answer because I honestly don't know it. How many times I wonder how my refrigerator kept working well beyond its, its death date because God said, you're being faithful to me. I'm just going to keep that refrigerator going for you. How many times God has kept the car going when that car should have died, but God says, you know what, I'm going to keep that going for you. For years, I tried to grow, grow fruit trees in our backyard. Nothing. Nothing. I tried every fruit tree you can imagine, every combination of tree. I would plant them, I'd be excited. I'd prune them, I'd spray them, I'd cut them, I'd fertilize them. And every year they'd have fruit and they'd drop their fruit. So I hear about not dropping fruit. Man, I look at that and thinking maybe I should have given more. <laughs> maybe that's the deal. Remember the last time I went out to those trees, I had, tree, I, tr- I had fruit trees lined up there. Remember that last spring, I went out and had a pep talk with them. I said, listen guys, you know, eight years here, nothing And so here's the deal. Either you produce fruit this year, or I'm telling you right now, I will cut you down. And sure enough, I had fruit. So you got to talk to them. You got to talk to them. I had fruit. Every tree was full of fruit. And I went to my wife and said, look, every tree is full of fruit. And she goes, yeah, don't get too excited yet. Sure enough, everyone dropped off. Within an hour, I had a chain hooked up to those trees, ripped them out by the roots, and off to the dump they went. Now, thankfully, God doesn't do that with us because he loves us. But he, there's a principle there that says this, if you will give to me, and you do so with joy, I'm going to engage in your life. I'm going to meet your need. Things that you can't even see happening, I will take care of them and make sure they don't happen. He says, test me on this. Now, the, the part of the reason for generous people are so happy is because of this promise. They're happy because they know the blessing of God. I want that for you. So 10% is a biblical number. Now, at this point, some of our Bible scholars would say, hey, time out, I know the Bible. And I know that the number three is also a biblical number. And seven is also a biblical number. So why not three or 7%? And I say to that, I know that one of the most popular numbers in the Bible is 40. Let's go 40%. And immediately we go, okay, let's work on 10. Let's just work on 10. Let's just keep sticking with that. So here's the deal. I'm going to come back and later remind you again, you can pick a percent. We're starting with 10 because there's a biblical number and it also fits the 10, 20, 70 plan. So it just fits out nicely there. But the, the issue here is this. You pick a percentage and you say to God, I'm going to give you first. And make sure that percentage fits within your income. It fits within your heart. And so there's no question, no question, if you only, have only ever lived as a consumer, to think about living on 70% and giving 10 first and saving 20 next is going to be overwhelming to you. And I don't have anybody a better answer than to say, just do it. Now, maybe you start at 2 or 3%. Maybe you start saving 8 or 10%. But you make the transition from getting away from this consumer mentality where you just consume it all and you say, no, it's going to be a new day. God, saving, and then what I have to live on. Now, let's take the next step. The fun part here is get the giving piece. You see, for most people, and i make sure you hear this with me. For most people, giving is not fun. Why? Because I only give when I'm coaxed, made to feel guilty, or I'm somehow pressed. So giving is not fun. But listen, when you have already been giving, saving it up first to give away, it becomes fun. Because I don't, it's not contingent upon some emotional tug of the heartstrings. It's not a matter of being filled guilty. I've already been setting this aside because it's my plan. So here's where the fun comes in. So how do you decide where to give? Here's the statement. You give from a grateful heart. You decide where to give by how your heart is moved. Grateful heart. Look at Matthew 6, chapter 6, verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here it comes. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this little statement from Jesus goes two ways. The first way, most of us think about it, it goes like this. So if I can look at your checkbook, I'll reverse that. If you can look at my checkbook and look at my spending, it wouldn't take you long to say, I know it, where his heart is. Because that's what it says. Wherever your money's going, that's where your heart's at. But the other side of that is you can change that, send your money, and your heart will follow. Send your giving, change your giving, and your heart will follow where your money is. So the starting place is you give from a grateful heart. Now remember, you decide this ahead of time. You make these decisions ahead of time, so you have a plan. You don't wait till someone tries to press you or gives you the best pitch. No, you make that decision ahead of time. And so the statement is this. This makes sense why the first place to think about giving would be to your church. Are you grateful for your church? Are you grateful for your church for the worship? Are you grateful for the occasional sermon? Are you grateful for a place that takes care of your children? Are you grateful for a place that takes care of your adolescent children? If you have your church. Give to your church because you have a grateful heart for it. Now, listen carefully. If you are not grateful for your church, and I know I'm talking to people who are in church right now. If you're not grateful for a church, you got to figure that out. Even if that means going someplace else where you are grateful. you got to figure that out. Because that's that starting place. What are you grateful for? But let's go further. You have kids in college? I, get, I have given to two other churches in our history uh, I'll say regularly, I still do it regularly, but with more frequency. And those two other churches was a church in Florida where our one daughter attended church, and then a church in Pennsylvania where my one daughter and my son attended church because they went to the same college and went to the same church. We sent money to those two churches. You say, why would you do that? Why? Because our college student went to church while they were in college and got in- involved in the church thank you, Jesus, for that church. And so we gave to them. My one daughter met, his, met her husband in that church. And so I give to them because I say, yay, team, because it's bigger than us. And so that's what generosity does. It gives you that, that ability to go and do that. And beyond the church, what other charities do you think of that you, that you are grateful for? Charities that are doing the job where you think, man, I'm so thankful they exist, then you give to them as well. Now at this point, other pastors would hear me and say, Scott, you're crazy. Don't be telling them to give to other churches. do not be telling them to give to other charities because you know you're you're going you're robbing yourself here. You're gonna get Aren't you aren't you afraid that if you do that they're gonna give their money elsewhere? Now listen very, very carefully. I'll give me full transparency. There's no question that we as a church have limped financially since COVID because we took a huge hit there's no question that there are ministries that we would like to do and there are ministries that are we are doing that are hampered because of lack of funds no question but the goal of this sermon and this series is not to get you to give money to the fund it is not to get your money to the ministry The goal I have is to get you to be generous and to change the way that you live, to change your thought process. If this entire world would leave the consumer mentality, there's not one church, there's not one charity in this world that would ever go without because the money is all there. And listen very carefully, friends. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. And if the people who call this church their home, whether it be in this room, whether it be at North Avenue seated there, whether it be watching on a screen at home, if the people of this church would make the change and stop living the crazy consumer mentality and would actually live the generous mentality in the live generous lives, this church will never go without. There'll be more money than we would ever need to meet every need available or possible out there. And so my goal is not to get you to give to me. The goal is to say, change the way that you think, stop being the consumer, and start down the road of generous thinking. Let me give you a scripture, a scripture for us to, to kind of bank on this all and then wrap up. Now, what's interesting, some background before I look at the passage. In the Old Testament, the Jewish community paid a temple tax. Now, just so you know, the Bible talks about the tithe, but if you looked at the amount of money that people paid into the temple, it'd be about, best guess is 35, 38%. When you look at all the tithes and the different offerings, but, so, but they only had a temple tax and literally paid their temple tax. And even if you didn't live in Jerusalem where the temple was, that you still gave, even in the New Testament, the temple was still in Jerusalem, so Jews around the world would send their temple tax back to pay for the ministry of the temple. So first thing I look at that and I go, man, great idea, Temp- church tax, and I think, oh, man, that, you can't even say those two words together. Church tax. That sounds horrible. That's not going to work. So I can't do that. Then I even think, sell seats. Even better, because here's what I know. You're all seated in the exact same seat that you sit every week or roughly the same zone. So we'll just, how about a yearly, yearly pass for your region, for your area? You know, the bottom line, I just came to a concert. I paid for X zone. You pay for X zone. Only we're going to reverse it. The people in the back, you pay more. People in the front, you pay less. Would it have a zone thing? That's not going to work. I get that. So the Apostle Paul had the same issue. So what's happening is he had people paying the temple tax, but now you have the church growing all all over the world. Up and down, the, up and down the, the, the Mediterranean coast, there's all these churches and people are giving to their local churches and, and trying to figure out how to make the ministry take place and how to happened. Now, what happened is this. Here's the picture, the picture you have to get. So the church starts in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the megachurch of the day. I mean, it literally was by, by, by all standards of history. It was a megachurch, thousands of people. Don't forget, 3,000 in one day, thousands after that. So Jerusalem is the megachurch, and Jerusalem is the one who's sending money out to all of these new churches to get started. The Apostle Paul is a missionary. He's taking money from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, building churches, growing churches. But over time, the Jerusalem church comes under incredible persecution. And the megachurch is now being attacked. And the Christians of the megachurch, they can't get jobs. They don't have money. They are outcasts from society. They're an impoverished people. Apostle Paul's out there and says, you know what? We're going to do something. And so he looks at all these other churches and he says, now it's our turn. Not just to give to the local church, but we're going to give back to the church in Jerusalem. We're going to give back to them. So he writes some letters. One of those letters he writes to the people of Corinth, the book of Corinthians. And in that, and when he talks about giving to them, he gives us a picture as to how to deal with this whole thing and collecting money. Now remember, this is 2,000 years ago. No checkbooks, no credit cards, no Venmo, no Zelle. Um, no online giving, no text to give, just coins. You got paid by a gold or silver or a copper coin. And if you wanted, if the price was one coin, that's the price. If it's a half a coin, you just literally, think, bang, that thing happened. Give them half a coin, quarter coin. I mean, that was, the, that was the currency of the day. So talking about offerings... We're not talking about, you know, planned giving, writing your check. We're talking about literally setting money aside. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Look at a couple of things and with this we wrap up. A couple of things. He says, first of all, do what I told the Galatians to do. What does that mean? It means this, friends. He's telling everybody the same story. He's telling all the churches the same truth. This is not like for this church or that church. He's saying, listen, I'm telling everybody the same deal. Here's how to approach this. Next, he says, on the first day of the week. What is is the first day of the week? Sunday. He said, on the first day of the week, Sunday, you set aside a sum of money. How much? What's your plan? You set that percentage. You set that aside. Um. Again, we go, well, how much should we set aside? Should I set aside an amount based on how the Spirit leads? Nope. Should I set it aside based on what I think others are going to give? Nope, because that's what we like to do. How do I measure up with everybody else? Nope. Uh, how do I wait till after the sermon to see if the guy, yeah, was he good today or not? Please, no, and not on that one. <laughs> ahead of time, he says, ahead of time, you decide. You decide. Set it aside. But How much? In keeping with your income. That's what he said. You know how much you make. You know how much you spend. You know how much you consume. In light of God's grace, what's, what's your percentage look like? Stick with the percentage, but what does that look like? Now, if the people would have said to Paul, yeah, but Paul, how much? I think Paul would have said, same thing. Well, what are you grateful for? How much are you thankful for? Set it aside. And then what happens, he said, now you're just playing grateful and generous and not stuck on compulsory giving. Just give me the amount, so I meet the the, the number. Now, the problem is this. It's hard, it's hard to have our giving match how grateful we are for eternity and for what Jesus has done for us, number one, because you can't put a price tag on that. Got it. But I also say it's hard because we've been living a consumer lifestyle our whole life. And we can't even begin to figure out how to make that match because all the money's going out already. And I get it. Friends, be brave, be courageous, and once and for all, break this crazy cycle. Trust God here and say, God, I'm going to live on 70%. I'm going to save 20 or 10. Or you can change the numbers. But God, I'm going to give to you first, and I'm going to trust you on this. Paul says, set it aside each week. I like that too. Set it aside each week. He says, that way when I come, there's no collection. You say, what does that mean exactly? Because we have a collection, yeah, but what Paul's saying is this. You set it aside, and that way when I come, I don't have to make a case. When I come, I don't have to show you the pictures. When I come, I don't have to give you the story, what God's doing here, and how he's changing lives. All I got to do is walk up and we go, yep, we're all in it together. You just give and celebrate. Just celebrate God's faithless. Now, this is a good plan. It's a great plan. Folks, for some of you, it's time to change the crazy cycle that you're in. Consuming all that you get. Always thinking, if only I had, if only I had, if only I had. Always worrying about money. Always thinking, and, and while I'm worrying about the money, I'm still in more debt and more debt trying to make ends meet with my credit card. That's crazy. Why not try the new crazy? So let me end. Why not try the new crazy? We're going to call it the happy plan. The new plan we'll talk about the church is the happy plan. Are You on the happy plan? I kind of like the sound of it, I got to tell you. Happy plan. The happy plan is this. Instead of living like the world, instead of give it and consume it, I mean get it and consume it, the new plan is going to be give it, save it, then live on it. It's a crazy plan, but it works. To all that I say, try it. Try this new crazy way of living. It brings happiness. It brings peace. Helps you sleep better at night. And so here's the final challenge. Don't lose ground on this. Right now you heard this and you could be a moment where you're kind of I should do that. Now, I had one more passage. I'm not going to read it because of its length. But if you want to go take a read sometime, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Apostle Paul actually says this. He goes, listen, so some of you bought in and you've said, you know, I should do this. Some of you have said right now, I should do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You can start at first verse. Some of you right now have said, I should do this. Some of you have even said, you know what? I'm going to do this. And then what will happen is by the time you get home, something will sidetrack you. If you read that past 2 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, listen, you already said you were going to do it, so now go do it. He just simply says, just cross the finish line here. You do so many things so well, he said. Be good in this one and go finish it. I want to challenge you today. This afternoon, go home, look at your finances. If you're married, husband and wife, look at your finances and say, you know what? Let's try the new crazy. Let's try the happy plan." Let's give the 10 or the whatever that percent, but you decide it. Let's give this right up front. And then let's save this. And then let's live on this. Might take you a little while to get there. But you try it. Your life will be changed. Your life will be changed. And remember, happy, happy, happy is the person whose life is ordered around giving rather than receiving giving instead of keeping it is such a crazy plan and yet it works i want to challenge you to do so be generous people stan let's pray i'm so thankful father that your word is true and that it's true in such practical ways uh, this is not it's not just true about having to be about some spiritual things in heaven or hell whatever but this is how to live our, how to live life and, and, and in it you would say to us if we would change the thought process of the consumer and recognize you as the owner with accountability and change our lifestyle happy is the man happy is the woman whose life is centered and structured around this idea of generous living because it models you you, Lord Jesus, have been incredibly generous to us. I pray very specifically. Let's be honest, Lord. There are people in this room whose heart will never be changed. They will never give or they'll give sparingly or spontaneously and that that kind of a deal sporadically. Never change. And I pray that you would change their heart because it's for their benefit. But I pray very specifically for the number of people that right now are just thinking, Lord, I I think I want to do this, but I don't know how. I mean, the numbers are tough because our mentality has been so consumer-driven. Give them the courage this day to say, this day is going to be the day of change for the new crazy. And we'll be excited to see what you do in their lives and through your church. Dismiss us in your grace. Amen. God bless you.